Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. You don't look like you got much of a tan this summer. That's because you're over the phone. Oh. Coming to you almost live from the former residence of former Alberta Attorney General John Farquhar Limburn. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam, and we are your hosts. And and this is really almost live because I'm coming to you from across the telephonic network. Uh, Scott and I, being the busy lads that we are, had to uh, record this separately from our main interview. So so if I sound weird. That's why. Scott, how was your summer? It was good. You did a lot this summer. You, you're planning a wedding. You performed at the Fringe. It's been, uh, it's, it's been a trial. Has it? A, a Herculean task. <laughs> uh, many things going on at once. Many juggling balls in the air, as it were. I haven't dropped anything yet, but uh, I'm definitely starting to feel tired. Let's, uh, let's hope you can hang in there for just a few more months. Indeed. How was your summer? It was great, actually. Uh, the, the biggest thing that happened to me was that uh, Rachel and I moved in together finally. We have a lovely apartment downtown and a cat. And uh, you probably will want to refrain from mentioning the actual address or you're going to have a lot of visitors. That's true. So I'm going to say that uh, that's all I'll say about being downtown. I'm, I'm downtown. I also work downtown, so there you go. There you go. Yeah, and so we've got a great show, actually, uh, uh, coming for our listeners, a great way to launch our third season. Can you believe three seasons? Yeah. Uh, we went on record previously stating that we didn't think we'd go longer than eight episodes. Yeah. And, and here we are. A lot of episodes later. So we uh, sat down at uh, a lovely restaurant, the former residence of an attorney general. Uh, now um, known as the Manor Bistro. That's correct. And we, we talked with Paula Simons from the Edmonton Journal. We had a great time chatting with her. And uh, it's it's kind of guerrilla style. Uh, yeah. We didn't have the ability to use our, our main setup, so we were kind of going on the fly with uh, with our portable mic. So uh, it's definitely going to sound maybe a little less polished than uh, our usual quality, but I think the quality of the conversation more than makes up for that. Absolutely. So we hope you enjoy it. You do a lot of radio, don't you? You've been on CBC Edmonton a few times over the last couple months that I've heard. Well, I got my start in radio. I got my my very, very first professional gig was working as a production assistant at CHQT when it played beautiful music. And I spent five years as a producer with CBC Radio here and in Toronto. So I've done a lot of radio. I've done ideas documentaries since I've left. And, uh, you know, I've done Charles Adler, I've done Rob Breckenridge, but I've never done the Unknown Studios. This is very exciting. Uh, it is worth noting that I currently got my start at CHQT Edmonton as well, although it's now called iNews 880. It doesn't play beautiful music. No. <laughs> it used to, though. It used to be Cool 880 and it played a allegedly beautiful music, but no longer. That is correct. No longer. And uh, are you sad about that? No comment from Scott. And the reason he's not sad is because his job is talking on the radio. Uh, and and because if it was still Kool-Aid 80, I would not have a job there. Yeah, so the news formats worked out really well for you. 
how was the transition from uh, from radio to print? Was it jarring? Was it natural? Was it wonderful? You know, it's a funny thing. People, whatever job I've done, whenever I've switched mediums, people always say, oh, but your experience is in this. So in the course of my lengthy journalistic career, I've done radio, I've done television, I've done weekly magazine, I've done monthly magazine, I've done daily print, I've done the internet. People always seem astonished that you can go from medium to medium. To me, it's all the same. It's all about crafting with words. It's all about journalism. It's all about storytelling. The mediums have their advantages and disadvantages. I love radio because it has intimacy. I loved the days when I was directing Edmonton AM, the live morning show for CBC, because live radio is live and it's happening now. And when the news is happening, it's exciting to be right there. And so in some ways, I think that's been easier for me to make the transition to our website and to Twitter and to live blogging because I have lots of chops doing live breaking news. I've always been told that um, radio is the most immediate form of uh, of news media, and that you have, and, and that's prior to social media, which is even in a way more immediate than that because you don't even necessarily have the filter of a of, of a news person in that case. Everybody's just suddenly tweeting, "Oh my God, there's been a fire," and that's more immediate than the radio guy who rushes to the fire and reports on it, which is more immediate than the TV guy who's there filming it so it appears later at 6, which is more immediate than the newspaper guy who's there writing the story so it'll be in the next morning's paper. So you have that those stages of immediacy. Now, you took a little bit of time to get on Twitter, didn't you? I, I, f- I feel like there were some Edmonton Journal early adopters and then, and then suddenly there was politics. Um, but you've seemed to really embrace it. I love Twitter. My daughter's a little bit worried about me. She's 14, and she says, you know, the people on Twitter aren't your real friends. Don't you think you've had enough screen time for today? Don't you think you should go outside and interact with some real people? Wow. She's very funny. The uh, tables have really turned then. Yeah, well, she's she's a smart ass. She comes by that honestly from both sides of her family. But I adopted Twitter when I was filling in for Graham Thompson as our legislature columnist. And I was working down there with Trisha Dett, uh, who was a very early adopter for the journal on Twitter. And Trish said to me, you have to do this. And I said, oh, this seems like a big waste of time. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Trish said, you are an old woman. Come be on Twitter. And I realized that I had a very core base of loyal readers who had a disconcerting habit of showing up on the obituary page. And when I would look at our obit page in the morning and think, oh, he used to write to me all the time. Isn't that sad? And I thought, it is important that I have some 20-year-old people who read my column as well. And the 20 and 30-year-olds were on Twitter. And I got onto Twitter at a really exciting time for the medium, right in the middle of the Bill 44 debate at the legislature, which was, I think, a real uh, high watermark for social media in this city. And I have to say credit to my colleague, Trisha Dett, who was covering legislature debates until three in the morning live on Twitter when she didn't have any other outlet for those stories. And so I leapt into it at a point when the wave was really cresting and I've I've ridden it a good long way. Do you find that you, you generate a lot of story ideas from Twitter or is it more like is it is it a collaborative thing for you or is it more um, conversational medium or a medium to debate what you've put out there already 
It's all of those things. I'm a debater from way back. I was a competitive debater in high school and university, and I've never stopped being a competitive debater. So that's one of the things I love about Twitter is that I get to fight with people. Uh, you know, I fight with Ezra Levant, and I fight with David McLean, and I fight with people on the left as well. And so for me, I think it makes the columns better because I'm honing the ideas. Sometimes I'm, you know, pre-fighting before the column is even written, and I can work out my ideas in that playpen before I, I put uh, you know the keys on on the uh, on the typewriter but I also use it to get story ideas um, and I've gotten lots of news tips on Twitter and helped the newspaper to jump on top of things see what people are talking about uh, and for me too it's really helped to function as a live news feed when our website isn't fast enough we can break the news first on Twitter. And if I'm home and not in the newsroom, I think the night, for example, that uh, uh, Obama had the press conference to announce that Osama bin Laden had, had, been, had been killed. And I had just sort of flicked on Twitter while my family was watching television. And the word first started bubbling out on Twitter of what had happened. And then I was able to live tweet things as it was happening. I was able to retweet things. I was able to monitor the newscast and and live tweet as Obama was speaking while my daughter and husband were trying to watch Glee in the next room. So uh, the bad thing about Twitter, as my family would tell you, is that I'm on it all the time. I get up at six in the morning and I start tweeting. I go to bed at midnight after I file my last tweet. It's, it's addictive and probably will drive me mad in time, but, but I do love it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's fair to say we both love it. Has it opened doors for us, Scott? The Twitter? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say that uh, I, I would go so far as to say that uh, the Unknown Studio would not exist had it not been for Twitter. So. Yeah, we, uh, it's how we promote ourselves. We also use Facebook, but not very well. No, it's just, yeah. We don't even use our website as well as we should. Sorry. It's okay. We're, we've, we've launched a new season. I'm, by the time you hear this episode, I will have already met with Owen and Melissa from Guru Digital Arts College to talk about new website, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, see, it's interesting. I've, I've only been on Facebook for about six, eight months now. And I'm finding it a very useful medium in a lot of ways, but it doesn't have, for me, the crackle and the immediacy of Twitter. But it's a much more, for me anyway, a civil arena, uh, because the people who are on my Facebook page are my fans. So they're self-selected, all 700 and some of them, to be people who like me in the first place. And so it's, it's a slightly dangerous thing if I write a controversial column and I go on my Facebook page and everybody loved it. And you think, oh, everybody loves what I do. And then I go and look on our actual web page and see what the actual real people have posted and say, oh. Perhaps not so universally beloved then. Those, uh, those newspaper comments are 90% garbage, I think. And, I, and my suspicion is that because it's because people get to hide behind a pseudonym. And I know the journal's gone some way to alleviate some of that by forcing you to register. But on Facebook, when the Edmonton Journal puts out stories and asks questions, the debate itself is much more civil, even if people disagree. And I think that's because they have to use their real names on Facebook. That's, but that's just a, a fact of the internet, is when people can hide behind anonymity, they're a lot more bold in their criticism and in what they're willing to say. Because 
you don't have to uh, you don't have to own it later on if somebody calls you on it. But I also think there's an etiquette to Facebook, which is interesting, and it's a different etiquette than prevails on Twitter, and a much different etiquette than prevails on our on our web pages. And I do think it, it goes beyond the real name thing because I know there are people who are following me on Facebook and that that's not their real name. Um, but you know, there's a peer pressure, I think, and a certain set of cultural expectations for that cultural space and so it's been interesting for me to see certain things that I simultaneously post on Twitter and Facebook get very different reactions. Uh, my Twitter stream is much more interested in politics. My Facebook people, you know, I put up a little tweet on my daughter's first day of high school about how I was the world's best mom and I got up and I made her banana pancakes the first day. And I think that had 3,000 impressions versus, you know, a piece about politics that might get 1,500. So it's, it's interesting to me I, if it's a gender thing or an age demographic thing. They are a different medium. And I think it's, it's been really educational for me as a print person. Someday there will not be a print newspaper. And I have to be ready for that world. And I need some people to be reading me who understand how the internet works. I think my, my suspicion is, from my experience using Facebook and Twitter, the reason that your fans may have reacted more to the post about the banana pancakes is because that's exactly what Facebook is designed for. It's designed to connect with friends and share the, um, I don't want to, the smaller stories of our lives together. I mean, my father's on there now because my brother started having kids and his wife as well. Um, <laughs> that would be a hell of a story. Yeah, actually, and shout out to him. He just had a new baby boy on Saturday. They named him Leonard Rosenhart. They'll call him Leo. Mazel tov. Thank you. Very nice. You, you could call him Spock. Yeah, thought about that. They, they were calling the fetus <laughs> Worf <laughs> whenever they had an ultrasound and they posted the pictures of it. They didn't call the baby Michael. No, they didn't. That's right. That would have been great. But that, that's my brother's middle name, so maybe that's why. But in any event, that kind of content gets, gets an awful lot of reaction. Unless someone is, going, is there for politics, and they're probably not, then, yeah, that's, that's just going to be the nature of the beast. And Twitter just seems like an endless, not in a bad way, but an endless ongoing debate about whatever happens to be going on that day, which is wonderful. Twitter, Twitter is very much a conversation. And that's, uh, I recently had this conversation, this conversation, uh, with uh, someone who's uh, relatively, he's been on Twitter for a while, but he only recently started tweeting as himself and not as, as his online business, um, and taking a more personal uh, role in, in what was going on. And he said that he feels at times that the conversation is passing him by, but at the same time, it's interesting to him that he's able to be to be witnessing it at the same time, even if he's not necessarily engaged in it, which I, I think is is one of the reasons why Twitter is such an interesting tool. And of course, the smarter the people you follow, you know, I follow this guy Bingo Fuel. It's, he's very clever. I hear he's a dick. That's what I've heard. Scott will attest to his personality. Yeah, a pretentious douche. <laughs> That's right. Um, damn, I had an outstanding point to make. Oh yeah. You were talking about uh, watching the conversation passing you by. There are some mornings I'll get on there, and it's like I feel like I've, I've not woken up late, but I feel like I have because there's already conversation going on. And it's, it's almost like 
trying to step onto an escalator that's moving too quickly. You're you're about to make that move. You're oh, you're gonna step onto it, and then you're like, nope, no, I have to wait because the right moment isn't there yet. And sometimes that's what I feel like. It can be really overwhelming. And I've been using it since 2008, so I've been on there for a while. And uh, there are some days where I still I think I don't know what I'm doing. Well, the other sensation I get sometimes being out west. It's a bit like sitting at the kids' table. I follow some national tweeters. Uh, you know, so if Andrew Coyne and Caddy O'Malley are having a conversation about national politics that they began two hours before I got up, and, you know, then I don't... I, I never quite know with people who are writing for the big national outlets. I still sometimes get that feeling like we're in the colonies here. And I might think of myself as a national level columnist. Does Andrew Coyne think of me as a national level columnist? I think every time I meet Andrew Coyne, he doesn't quite remember the last time I met Andrew Coyne. So, uh, you know, sometimes I watch the important people have their conversations and I think, well, I'm not quite important enough to get in on that conversation. Similarly, sometimes when I watch people who aren't in the professional media having conversations, I'm hesitant to jump in for fear that I might disrupt the organic nature of their conversation if they think a media person is taking part. So sometimes I just watch, and that's fun too. At, on the exact other uh, side of the coin for that, uh, I have, like, I am a professional journalist. That's what I literally do to make money for a living. And at the same time, I feel like such an amateur compared to a lot of the people who uh, I consider, in a fundamental sense, my betters in, in what I do, like like you, for example. But at the same time, Twitter has given me an opportunity to forge some very unusual relationships with some people who I never would have imagined I'd been able to. One of the people off the top of my head uh, is David Blaustein, who's ABC's main entertainment reporter. And in fact, he does. you guys have segments of David Blaustein on iNews 880. Well, yeah, because he's part of the National Wire Service, so we, get, we pick up his stuff. And uh, somehow he and I are both Twitter buds, and we will talk back and forth. And he's not above talking to me, which is fascinating. And he's, like, DM'd me and, and given me uh, compliments on stuff we've written on our website. And it blows my mind because I'm like, I consider him to be one of the big kids at the big kids table, but he makes time for me because I'm one of his colleagues or he perceives me to be one of his colleagues. And that, that intrigues me. And that seems, that seems like something that without Twitter, it's something I would never have been able to, to do. It's a connection I would have never made. That raises the question for me. Uh, and by the way, I'm going to ask you about the phrase beg the question. Cause I don't know what it means. And I know it's often used incorrectly. Um, you, you've interacted with David Blaustein, the, the, uh, the uh, lofty entertainment journalist, shall we say. Have you, Paula, interacted with anyone where you've actually, like on Twitter, you've actually gone to your peers and been like, guess who I talked to on Twitter today? Well, Roger Ebert has retweeted me. That was very exciting. And Jay Rosen. Um, but I have to admit, the one day I went fangirl was when Justin Trudeau started following me. I was like, no, Justin Trudeau is following me and he's talking to me as Justin Trudeau. I was like, okay. <clears throat> yes, that's right. It's Justin Trudeau. That's right. So, uh, yes, it's interesting. When Roger Ebert was retweeting me, it was because I was writing about something that he found interesting. But of course, the amplification of that is extraordinary. Uh, 
so, you know, suddenly I was getting all kinds of people who were talking back to me who would never have normally talked to me, but they saw the tweet via Roger Ebert. And so there you go. That's awesome. You know who started following me and I thought it was weird was Biff Naked, which, you know, kind of cool. You know, she's kind of a famous musician. But the most exciting interaction I had (laughs) was with the woman who played Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager. Jerry Ryan actually and I had actually a brief exchange on Twitter once. So that was uh, that was very exciting for me. I was hoping the music would not be. It's actually the nice thing about this mic is that it only picks up where you're pointing. Unfortunate thing though is that if I do this, that's right. And uh, and because of the ambient noise, we're not going to be able to cut this part of the conversation out at all. So this is where we would put an ad, probably. Yeah. Um, one of the oh the uh, the we'll do the intro to the show later. So it's not all confusing. Yeah. Um, but back on topic, uh, you were bragging about your Jerry Ryan interaction uh, earlier. I recently got uh, tweeted back at by the old Spice guy, which I was quite pleased by. What did he say to you? Uh, he had made a comment about uh, he wasn't certain what he was going to do. Oh, there we go. He wasn't certain what he was going to do with his day, whether he was going to work on his ab-powered perpetual motion machine or if he was going to play football with some time-traveling pirates. And I commented, well, how often do you get an opportunity to uh, play football with time-traveling pirates? To which he replied to me, oh, I play a game with those guys every week. It's 96 of them versus me, and uh, last week I beat them uh, 196 to nothing. To which I replied to him, oh, you went easy on them, I see. Uh, That's in my favorites folder, I'm saying. Uh, That is worth bragging about. And I just did. Now, (laughs) here's a question for you, Uh, because as we all know, I work in the world of marketing and advertising. Did you guys happen to catch the way they tried to refresh the old Spice guy with they brought Fabio in and they did some stuff with him? Did you have? No. So we can't talk about that then. But okay. No, that would be terribly rude. But did you watch it, Scott? Did you see it? Excuse us. And what did you think? I thought it was uh, I thought it was hilarious, but I think pretty much anything Old Spice does right now is hilarious. They've really hit upon a fairly brilliant marketing scheme with the Old Spice guy. And do you buy Old Spice products? As a matter of fact, I do. As a result of this campaign? Uh, partly. The truth is, uh, the truth is that Anita actually uh, also really likes the campaign and bought me some of the Old Spice body wash because she was intrigued. And so she found one that she really liked the smell of, and now I use it because I like to please her, and it doesn't smell bad. So, There you go. Advertising works. That was a very metrosexual moment, I must say. That was lovely. <laughs> Scott's hair looks really nice, doesn't it? <laughs> my, my, my daughter, who is 14 and, and, and witty, told my husband the other day that he was a metrosexual, and he got very offended. And she pointed out to him that he walks a Bichon Frise, wears a fedora at all times, and used to drive a Mazda Miata. And <laughs> that is fantastic. I want to meet your husband now. I just want to see the fedora. No, my husband's my husband's a, he's a snappy dude. He's a he's a he's a very you know he's, he's a he's a guy who knows how to dress. I feel like he'd have to be to be uh, married to you. I I feel like that's a 
that's an honor that that requires constant vigilance. Can I say that as politely as I, as possible? You know, he's very sweet because he just thinks I'm me, of course. I mean, and I have to tell you, I met him when I was 19, so he's known me a very that's a very long time. That's probably before you were born. Uh, and the thing I find most endearing about him is that he thinks I'm tremendously famous. And that when we go places, people should know who I am. And he's always quite hurt when they don't. I'm like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Um, yes, so he's he's quite adorable. Nice it, well, I mean, you know, newspapers not quite like television, but I feel like you are a very important and famous person as well. And and I have to say, even though I I was um, smug about it. It has absolutely been an oversight that it's taken us to the first episode of our third season to have you on the show. Because I am damn good radio, yeah. as we as as you can now see and hear. Well, that that and the fact that uh, word started to reach us that you were mildly offended by the fact we hadn't had you on the show yet, which actually we considered to be a bit of an honor in a way, because that means that we were worth your time. <laughs> And we became extremely concerned that we'd offended you, and so naturally our reaction was to play it cool and pretend like we had planned to have you on the show all along, and and we had. Which is true. We had. We just clearly didn't get to it fast enough. Paula, you're on a list. It's not like Nixon's enemies list, which you're also too young to remember. No, I mean, here, here's the truth of it. I, I know this is going to come as a shock to you. I was never a very cool person. I was not very cool in junior high. I was not very cool oh, in high yeah. school. Twitter has given me the fantastic, illusory feeling of being cool. Because look at all you cool kids on Twitter, and the cool kids talk back to me on Twitter, and I can pretend that I'm 15 years younger than I am. It's it's only every now and again when people do things like, you know, where were you during 9-11? And they talk about being in their fifth grade class, and I go, oh crap, oh god, I am older than dirt. It was my birthday this week, and so I'm feeling, you know. Happy birthday. And, and we, we, you know, because I'm a birthday slut, I said on Twitter, uh, you know, I'm 25 followers short of a of a benchmark and i said for my birthday i would like four thousand followers and so now i'm well over four thousand which is sort of like my chronological age as well four thousand right on no rules no censors it's adam rosenhart unleashed At the beginning of this episode, you heard me talking to Scott about how I recently moved uh, downtown with my girlfriend, Rachel. Now, I used to live pretty close to downtown, so it wasn't like a dramatic change, but it has meant that I have the opportunity now to easily bike and walk to work. So that means that I'm in the unique position of being a cyclist sometimes, a pedestrian sometimes, and even a car driver sometimes. And I have to tell you, as a pedestrian... I think cyclists are doing it wrong. There have been many times where I've been walking down a sidewalk, and they're not terribly wide in this city, unfortunately, where a row of cyclists has come by on the sidewalk and, and you know nearly run me off the sidewalk. I don't think that's right. Neither does the city of Edmonton. In fact, there is a rule that says, according to bylaw, that if you have a wheel with a diameter of 50 centimeters or more, you can't ride on the sidewalk. You're legally a vehicle. 
Now, I put the question out there, or I made the point on Twitter, actually, last week, about how I find it really annoying that cyclists ride on the sidewalk. And a lot of people came back to me and said, yeah, but riding on the road is scary. And, I, and I'll grant you that. Sometimes riding on the road can be really intimidating. And, uh, you know, those, a lot of drivers don't have a lot of patience for cyclists. And that's something that definitely has to change. But... Cyclists on the sidewalk put pedestrians at risk, and I don't think that that's something we can just turn our noses up at. It's it's a real danger. Cyclists move very quickly. Sometimes, as a pedestrian, you get you get scared, and you don't know which direction you need to move into the way of, and you might jump right in front of a moving bike, and that could cause injury. Certainly not on the scale that a motor vehicle accident could, but still, we're putting people in danger. So I'm sick and tired of being a pedestrian and having to deal with cyclists on the sidewalk. If you don't feel safe riding your bike on the roads in Edmonton, certainly on main streets, find a side street. There are dozens of them that you can ride. And please, for the love of God, cyclists, if you're going to engage in risky behavior like that or ride on the road at all, wear a bloody helmet. This is the Unknown Studio. Have you considered sponsoring or advertising on a local podcast? Well, this is your opportunity. The Unknown Studio is looking for advertisers. If you're interested, contact Adam at theunknownstudio.ca or Scott at theunknownstudio.ca, and this space could be filled with your ad. Now, back to the show. So we should take a quick moment here uh, before we continue with uh, Paula uh, to thank a few people who continue to support us and who we continue to support. That's right. And we'll start it off with the uh, the uh, Hogwarts of digital media here in Edmonton. That's Guru Digital Arts College. Owen Briarly, the Dumbledore of Edmonton, has uh, built a school that's doing some incredible stuff. They've got this this phenomenal range of programs from web design to illustration and sequential art. They're bringing in a 3D program as well at the school there. So you can find out more about them at gurudigitalarts.com. Fantastic. And then, of course, we should also thank uh, the Traveling Tickle Trunk. Yeah, they've been a tremendous support. Our good friends uh, at Edmonton's Sex Positive Sex Store. Uh, We don't have a segment from them this week, but we will have one, I'm sure, coming up. I believe we will, and uh, just wanted to uh, thank them for continuing to support us. I was in there over the summer looking at uh, some of their products, which are fabulous, exciting, and interesting. Were you, were you looking to purchase yourself a dildo? Uh, not not myself a dildo, but that, you know that's all I'll say. That's all. I'll say. <laughs> and uh, they have rearranged the stores slightly, so if you haven't been in there for a while, definitely go and check them out. And you can see them online at TravelingTickleTrunk.com. Right on. And uh, now back to the interview with Paula. Uh, so um, I had a question actually about 9-11 since it's just passed I am curious to know where you guys were for it because I'll tell you where I was I was being woken up by a ex-girlfriend to tell me to turn the television on and I hollered at her with righteous indignation we were on the rocks at the time and uh, said, no, why would I get up? And she told me why. And then I got up. And my dad was still home. 
And it, I believe it was like 10 or 11 in the morning. And I was like, Dad, what are you doing here? And he was just like staring at the TV. I have a doctor's appointment this morning. And I said, uh, okay, so what's going on? And he just kind of turned to me and he's just like, I don't know, sit down and watch. It was, it's like, you know, I always, after the fact, every year when they they would commemorate that moment, I kind of thought, oh, Jesus, really? But it, it's, it's a shocking thing and it's very, very haunting. So where were you, Paula, uh, when the first plane hit the tower? Well, I don't know where I was when the first plane hit the tower, but I know exactly where I was when I found out. It was my daughter's first full day of kindergarten when they weren't doing, you guys are too young to understand this, when they start the little ones, they do it as a staggered start, so they come and they eat a popsicle. So this was going to be her first really, truly day of kindergarten with all the kids there. And I had just started back full-time at work. I'd been working part-time up till then, and they had just promoted me to being city columnist. And I'd worked late the night before finishing my first column, and it was a disaster. It was a piece about Deborah Gray and the future of the Reform Party, and it was really boring. And the, I the what party? Exactly. <laughs> and I hadn't found my voice, and I wanted my debut piece to be really special, and it hadn't worked, and so I was really... I was really stressed. I was stressed about sending my child to kindergarten. She was only four. I was stressed about starting this new job full time. And the phone rang, and it was my cousin who lives next door to me. And, and it was the same kind of conversation. He said, turn on the television. I, said, I don't have to turn on the television. Yeah, I'm, really, I'm really busy. He said, turn on the television now. And I turned it on just in time for footage of what I think was the second plane hitting the second tower. And, you know, I, I sort of felt like I split into two people. I had to continue to pretend to be mummy who was going to take the four-year-old to school. I turned off the television right away because I didn't want her to see it. And I smiled and I put her in the car seat and I kept smiling and I took her to school. And, and all the time, what's in the back of your mind? In the back of my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I have to, uh, you know, I have to know what is happening. I have to get to the newsroom right now. Uh, you know, and of course, as a journalist, you have this completely deluded belief that somehow your being in the newsroom is important in that moment but I didn't know I did not know what was happening so and I didn't want the radio on in the car so I dropped her at school I tried to stay calm you know I ran back to the car I sped down 100th Avenue I ran into the building and you know we had all the televisions on and you have to think in 10 years how much has changed in the media universe we put out a special edition of the paper that afternoon so that people could get the news because we didn't, I don't even remember if we had a website. If we did, it was only very rudimentary. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no, you know, were people texting 10 years ago? Maybe some. But, you know, we actually put out a special edition of the paper that afternoon and we tried to find local stories. You know, we sent people to the airport because planes were being rerouted and grounded even here. I remember one of my assignments that day was to call people at the uh, Muslim school and talk about how they were handling security for the children there. And, you know, talking to, to you know, academics at the U of A. But thinking about those kids at that school, and they were legitimately worried for the safety of their children at that school. And I'm thinking about my kid at kindergarten and you know the nanny's going to come and pick her up and i'm and i'm here so it's such a strange thing to think back 10 years and now she's starting high school i've been writing this column in one form or another for 10 years the world has just transformed 
as a media entity in those 10 years. The way we exchange information, the way we interact with each other, the cultural shift that's happened over those 10 years is really remarkable. Scott, where were you on September 11th, 2001? I was at home. Um, I do remember that's one of the first days that I was truly interested in what was happening in the news, like globally. Um, I'd, uh, I'd woken up in the morning, I'd gone upstairs and turned on the computer, and I'd gone on the internet, and uh, I was on one of the early chat programs, I couldn't tell you which one, and one of my friends, basically, same story, you need to, you need to go, on the, go on the TV right now because there's been an accident in New, New York, and it was still early enough that only one plane had hit, they still thought it was just a terrible accident, I was like, oh my god. So I went downstairs, turned on the TV to see what it was about, and was watching TV when the second plane hit. So I, I did witness the second plane hit peripherally on television. And I was glued to the television for the rest of the day. Like, I could not get enough news information that day, just what was going on. And that was really the first time that's ever happened to me. And I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily what made me a news junkie, but I, I do agree that that was really the day the, that the way that especially television news is delivered changed on that day, and it's never gone back. You know, after, um, excuse me, after I sat at home and watched for a little while, I was, I was a volunteer. I, I, I wasn't working as a paid staffer at the Gateway at the time, but I was an active volunteer, so I, I hustled my butt down to campus. I don't remember whether or not I saw the second plane hit, though I suspect I do. It all feels really blurry now. Well, and we've seen it so many times. I actually went online the other day. I was writing a commemorative piece for our 9-11 edition of the paper. And I thought I had seen the second plane hit live. And I looked at the timeline and I thought, yeah, except the second plane hit at about 7 a.m. our time. And I don't think I was up and in the kitchen by 7 a.m., so it was interesting how many false memories I think we all have because we've seen the footage so many times. It's really hard to sort out now what we saw live, what we saw over and over and over again. I mean, there's never been a news event in human history that's been played and replayed so many times in so many iterations. Yes. The only thing I can think that comes close, and it's, it's close but not at that point would be the Japanese tsunami that just happened uh, recently just because there was so much it was the first time in human history that there was a, a major natural disaster that just had so many people with the technology to capture it live and and uh, share it with people immediately and that's the only thing I can think of that that comes close not quite there but close to the 9-11 it probably didn't have the same level of scrutiny, certainly from like the networks, because I mean, CNN, ABC, NBC, all the major networks, that was all they covered for a couple weeks after or a week or so after. But I remember getting off the bus and, and on the bus, I actually had a cell phone at the time. It was 2001. So but it was kind of rudimentary just being like, you know, phoning uh, Jennifer Pabellano. Uh, who now works for like TransLink and Bees. And it's interesting to think about like who the people were that you were with at the time, where they are in their lives right now. But I got on campus and it was it was like a it was deadly silent the way that campus never is. It's nine eleven is in a way the the same kind of cultural touchstone 
that uh, the JFK assassination would have been for the generation before us. For, like, our generation. I, I can't really speak for Paula on this one. I just say that I am not that old. Okay. But My parents are, though. Definitely for, for at, the very, at the very least I can speak for, I'm sure, you and me. That like that's that's one of those benchmark moments where everybody's like, I know where I was that day. I know where I was when I heard it. I remember all the events of that day very clearly, and I can't think of a, of another day like that in my lifetime. And it was it was it's remarkable to walk through a place like the Students Union Building, which I don't even think had been renovated at the time. There was no atrium or anything, and just just bumping into Jen in the sort of main corridor of Sub, and just kind of exchanging like hey how's it going yeah this is crazy and just then staring at televisions and trying to figure out how on earth a student newspaper tries to be relevant and insightful during a global event like that it was it was very challenging because you really do worry that anything that you do seems solipsistic i mean we were not immediately impacted by anything that day and so you know to write to try and localize it almost diminishes the reality of what happened. And yet, people still wanted to have their local media mediate that story for them. Because just getting the CNN version is not the same. It was a really difficult balance for us to strike to and for me to strike. And, you know, I remember thinking about ways to localize it that didn't trivialize it and didn't I think the Canadian media in general made a mistake right after 9-11 and tried to write too many pieces about how it was about us in some way. And I think that's human nature. Even when something tragic and dreadful happens, you don't wish that it happened in Toronto. But it's still, you know, you want to be part of the narrative. And the fact that you're only very much on the periphery of that narrative you have to remind yourself this story is not about you this is not about us i think about some of the national media you know the, the articles that were you know was it because of our border security is it because of you know our anti-americanism and I, I just wanted to scream at people you know this is not about us this is not about us this is not our story and we shouldn't wish this story on ourselves it's almost that typical canadian hand-wringing thing right well, and I would say it's even more than that. It's universal because we were just talking about how 9-11 impacted the three of us. Did we lose anybody at 9-11? Did it happen in our town? Not at all. But we're still, in a way, in our minds, connected to it. And I think part of that is because of the media to kind of bring it back around. And, uh, and you do work for the media, Paula. So... The mainstream media, the Ooh. bad mainstream media, that, the corporate media. That is a dirty, dirty series of words. I think they call that a phrase, actually. And I will point out that you can't see, but she's wearing red, which implies to me that she is part of the liberal mainstream media. Oh, yeah, with her Metascare and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. If Sarah Palin saw me in this dress, she'd think I was a good Republican. God, what a monster that woman is. <laughs> I think Sarah would rock this dress, but not quite as much as I do. She's one of those figures that you just kind of want to sit down and grab her by the shoulders and shake her and scream, Really? Over and over again. Sarah Palin represents a, a scary type of politician um, to me. Not What she represents to me is a person who wants to be the president of the United States because it'll make her more famous. And that is the wrong reason to be in politics. It's the wrong reason to be engaged uh, in, in the capacity that she is. 
I would I would rather I would rather Michelle Bachman, as crazy as she is, and I'm, I'm not going to get into that, and and I'm going to cannot gonna say, see the faces I am making now, and and I will admit that she she strikes me as someone who is completely divorced from reality, but at the very least, it seems to me that she wants to be a politician for the right reasons, even if she has the wrong ideas, and. I can't say the same for Sarah Palin. She wants to be a politician for all the wrong reasons, and that that scares me in a way fundamentally more. I I can't explain it better than that. Sarah Palin, fan? Yes? No? Uh, ironic fan, sorry. Well, you know, I am an ironic fan. In a strange way, I, I was fascinated by the Sarah Palin narrative because when she was the governor of Alaska I remember people like Brian Mason here praising her because of the way that they calculated their royalty formula in Alaska saying we should be more like Sarah Palin and then I think Scott is right she became the meta politician I mean she really it's like the picture of Dorian Gray for the 21st century she became not herself but some kind of media projection of herself so she's almost become a self caricature and you know it's gotten to the point that you can't remember anymore you know when it's her and when it's Tina Fey it's uh, it it is a most curious thing and it's almost like she went through the looking glass and came out some something else but but I do feel in some ways because she and I are of an age and um, oh you do not share anything even remotely anything with her but do you know what I think I think a lot of the reaction to her was sexist in the same way I think a lot of the reaction to you know to Daniel Smith is sexist um, Michelle Bachman though that's a whole other breed of cat I mean that's granted yeah you know the thing about you know, the thing about Sarah Palin is that at some level, still coming through all that weird gloss, I get the feeling that she's an actual person. With Michelle Bachman, I mean, that's just crazy. She's crazy. Um, God is sending the American Congress a message by sending hurricanes and earthquakes. Um, you know, some of... Yeah, Paul, Paul Revere was not working on the side of the British. I mean, the thing, you know, it, yeah, it just, oh, please. I mean, Rick Perry starts to look like a good bet. I just, I don't understand. I went to grad school in the United States. I lived in America for two years. Some of my best friends are American. I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. Some of my best friends are Republicans, and they're smart Republicans, and... I mean, do people think that they can control someone like Michelle Bachman the way that, you know, the elites injure... No, that, that, no, no, I won't say that, but that's bad. Um, I'm, I'm baffled. I mean, here's a country in economic... Ruin? Econo well, you know, teetering on the brink of economic ruin with so many social issues to face. And the Tea Party... The Economist had a great commercial, uh, great cartoon the other day that showed sort of the Tea Party leading the Republicans by the nose, the Republicans leading America by the nose, and America leading an aghast world by the nose, you know, as, as the world is kind of looking down at the Tea Party and thinking, how did this small bunch of kooks start to dictate the narrative that we're going to have as the discussion of international affairs for the next 10 years? Uh, are you a fan of Michelle Bachman, Scott? 
uh, I, I probably really shouldn't say, but I will say um, that I am largely turned off of American politics and have been for a while. Uh, there was a time when I wrote for the Gateway, actually, I was very, I followed so many American political uh, blogs and pundits, and I was just, I, I couldn't get enough. Um, but after the, uh, after the, the most recent presidential race, I got so disgusted with the political narrative, like so literally disgusted that I, I can't, I, I stopped reading all the blogs. I can barely follow American politics because I'm just, it sickens me. It sickens me. And every time I see a little bit of their style of politics creep into Canadian politics, it breaks my heart and it makes me sad because we do not need that here. We, no one needs that anywhere. And I wouldn't wish that form of politics on any country. Any style of politics is better than that. Uh, democratic politics, I'll clarify. You know, I, I find the same thing. I've Over the last two months, Rachel, my girlfriend, and I have been watching The West Wing. And I find myself longing for that sort of, that, that story. Like, you know, something that's not, that, yeah, okay, Republicans and Democrats don't get along. In fact, the extreme fringes of those parties hate each other, but they always find a way to, or they, they often find a way to meet in the middle. And the, the way that, like, the way the RNC has, like, gone after Obama has been fairly despicable. They, they kind of, they, they sledgehammer his kneecaps, and then they give him what he wants, and then they call it something else, and it's gross. It's disgusting. It's part of it, and... I mentioned this most recently in the most recent election as well, is a fundamental lack of respect. One of the things that you need to remember in politics, even when you're discussing your opponents, is that you're all, you all have the best interests of the country in mind, even if you have a different perspective and a different opinion on what that best interest in is in your heart you still love your country and that is the one thing you need to remember and that and through that you can respect your opponents even if you don't agree with them and that's something that's been kind of lacking Canadian politics for a while and it is absolutely lacking in American politics and it's one of the reasons why the two sides can't even meet on the middle ground anymore there's no compromise it's our way or the highway and if the rest of the country must burn because of that so be it now, what about provincial politics? We've got um, a PC leadership race that we don't know the outcome yet. Even as uh, this this show airs, we've got an, a liberal race that will be decided. Scott believes he knows who's going to win the PC. Who's going to win? I know who won. Who won the PC leadership race? Dr. Raj Sherman is the new leader of the Alberta Liberal Party as of the recording of this conversation. Oh, so Sorry, I missed that. So, so that is fantastic. Then the reason that I think it's fantastic, and I want to hear your guys' comments, is because, first of all, Hugh McDonald's a jerk, and he's married to a, a, the, a, some, some weird notion of what the Alberta Liberal Party is, and it hasn't existed for 10 years. Raj Sherman, you know, a little bit on the uh, knee-jerk side, let's say. And, and maybe someone who needs to be corralled by a handler a little bit, but I think his heart's in the right place. What do you think that does to the Liberals in Alberta? I'd like to comment first because I suspect Paul is going to have a much longer, more insightful uh, comment than I will. Uh, and I can't, and I, can't, uh, I can't really comment my personal belief, but I will say 
I think I understand why he was uh, the choice for the liberals, and that's because he's he's kind of bombastic. He's got a lot of personality, something that they've arguably been lacking for a while, and they're in a position where they can afford to gamble on him and see if maybe he injects some life into their party, um, because they don't need to play it safe at the point at the at the s stage that they're at right now politically in Alberta. They can afford to take a chance and gamble on him, in my opinion. Now, you are a city columnist, but you did fill in for Graham Thompson. What do you think of Raj being the leader of the Liberals? Well, you know, to bounce off what Scott just said, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I mean, the Liberals only have the freedom to take a chance because they're dead. I mean, they're, they're functionally dead otherwise. I, I, I don't think Hugh McDonald is a jerk. I think Hugh McDonald is a very honorable man who had a very... A very clear vision of what he wanted his party to be but he wasn't prepared to negotiate with other parties like the Alberta party on any kind of entente. Laurie Blakeman I think only ran out of a sense of duty. I don't think she particularly wanted the job of being liberal leader. Do you think that that came across in the way that she campaigned? I do I mean it was interesting I Laurie came in to speak to the journal's editorial board last week and she she had a great editorial board, but one of the things that she said that really struck me is that it had never occurred to her to try and campaign the way Raj did, to try and reach everyone. I mean, what I know about Raj Sherman is that in his personal life, he is an intensely competitive guy. I mean, people who've played sports with him, he plays to win, and he plays to win in every venue. And he went into that race with a degree of professionalism that the other candidates didn't even come close to matching. What I can tell you uh, people are listening to this after the fact, but but the news broke as we're recording it today. Uh, very few people cast votes in the Liberal leadership race. Only about eight thousand out of you know more than twenty thousand who were eligible to cast votes. If you can't get eight thousand people to vote for you, you know nobody else deserved to win if they couldn't come close to catching the number of votes that Raj did. I've spent a lot of time with Raj Sherman. I did a, a piece a couple of years ago where I spent a shift with him in an emergency room. And I watched him and talked to him all through the, this last 18 months. Raj is not stupid. He's, a, he's a, an emergency room physician. I watched him with patience. He's a wonderful and empathetic doctor. but. You know, if we can be Star Trek nerds here for a minute, he's, you know, all Deanna Troy and no data. Um, <laughs> that, that has to make whatever thing we do uh, like a blooper list or something. All Deanna Troy, no data. Brilliant. He, he's an empath and he responds, he responds from his heart before his head. And I watched him with patience, and I thought, I would like you for my doctor. I would not like you for my premier. Uh, I don't think he's a strategic thinker, although, as I say, he's a very competitive thinker. And, I mean, he'll go hard to get what he wants. But anybody who thinks that what's happened in the late, last 18 months was part of some grand Raj Sherman master plan, no, 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 no. I mean... Uh, 
can he lead a party that is going to fracture if people perceive this to be a hostile takeover, a, a disaffected Tory who came and bought up their franchise? I'm not sure. Can he make nice with the Alberta party? It was interesting to me on Twitter today, Sue Huff, who was the leader pro tem of the Alberta party, was very quick out the gate to offer her gracious congratulations to Raj. And Lou Arab of the NDP, who is uh, Mr. Rachel Notley, was just as quick to come out and say that Raj would be a disaster and it would be the end of the Liberal Party. And I thought, yeah, and there's the narrative of why we will have another 40 years of Tory rule unless it's the Wild Rose Alliance. So is it a, is is Raj, um, he's not going to lead the, the Liberals to to a majority. Will he lead them to more seats? Will he lead a united left? At this point, the Liberals, I mean, forget about forming the government. The Liberals will be damned lucky if they can stay as official opposition. Uh, you know, Hugh and Laurie have committed to staying on for one more election cycle. They have great personal popularity. They do fantastic constituency work. If there are two Liberals who can hang on, it will be them. Dave Taylor, who was one of the higher-profile liberals in Calgary, has already crossed to the Alberta party. Raj has tremendous personal cachet. He's got real charisma and he's got real charm, and there are a lot of people out there who have not spent as much time with him as I have, who have, you know, he comes across as a very selfless crusader for public health care. And as a frontline emergency room physician, he honestly and legitimately believes those things. Whether he can put together a party and a platform to hold the public trust as leader of the opposition in the face of Daniel Smith's people, I don't know. And I like Raj. So then what about, what about the PC leadership race? Um, we all know now who Frederick Lee is, um, and it's patently ridiculous. This notion of two email addresses, one foipable, one questionably foipable. Um, it's interesting to see the far right say, yeah, this is kind of how things are conducted. What the hell is going on in the PC leadership race? Hubris. Is that what it is? They've been in power so long. It's, and I, I would say this this is true of any party, and this was true of the Liberal Party uh, federally. It's the, it's true with the with the Conservative Party provincially. Any party that is in power too long gets comfortable, and they get to the point where they think they can do no wrong, and that they don't have to try anymore. And it takes them getting kicked to the curb for them to learn their lesson. And I think we're getting close to that time for the for the provincial Tories. Now, is the risk then that we have, God forbid, and I'm bearing all my political stripes here, a wild rose majority? Well, I don't know that Danielle Smith has the momentum to, to maintain. It's going to depend a lot who becomes the leader of the Tories and what happens to the price of oil. If the price of oil stays high and stable and the economy takes off again, if this province fills up with jobs and upgraders, then I think the Tories are safe. And I don't think there's anything anybody can do to beat them as long as Albertans are fat and sassy and happy. Um, it would be really interesting to see what the outcome of... Paula is distracted by the background listener-supported radio thing. 
going on, but we are a listener-supported radio. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Um, I... Sorry, it's the talking heads, and the, the talking heads are not just the ones sitting around the table here. I like this song. I'm going to stop listening to it now. Um, to get back to the Frederick Lee double email thing, I don't find it so disturbing that Ted Morton had a secondary email account for business, and I can understand I have that temptation some days myself. I'm not foipable. What concerns me a lot more is, um, and I spoke to Dr. Morton about this this week, he he says that you know when he left office, they did a, a wipe of all of his emails and shredded all the paper copies. And is that standard practice? So he says. And do you know what? He might be right. And so I don't think this is about Ted Morton. I think Scott's right. I think this is about the institutional malaise of the Conservative Party and about a civil service, frankly, that has completely lost track of what's the government versus what's the party. After 40 years in power, I think this civil service has become culturally corrupted. I don't mean that the individual civil servants are corrupt. We've got some fabulous people in those positions. But the culture of governance in this province has become completely blurred so that people don't understand that a professional civil service is not an arm of the Conservative Party. I, I would be surprised, I, I rather I would not be surprised if somehow a different government came into to power in the next election cycle if the civil service had no idea what to do with different people at the reins, with a different, uh, with a different culture coming in. I think bureaucratically that the province would be paralyzed for a short while because it would be such a fundamental shift from everything that they've known before. I guess for me it's just really hard to picture um, anything but a conservative government. And, and I, I, I can only speculate on who the leader might be. I have no idea. I have no clue. Um, I don't think Morton's fared well as of this recording in the last week. Um, but you know what? doesn't matter. who. I mean, do you have a membership? Do I have a membership? Does Scott have a membership? He isn't trying to win a popularity contest in the province. He's trying to sell more memberships than anybody else. And, I mean, Ed Stelmack won the leadership last time because everybody in Vegreville bought a membership and voted for Ed. If you can get 10, 20,000 people to buy your memberships and vote for you, you, you know, you will fare well. And polls that poll the rest of the province don't make any difference. What I find fascinating about this race is that the apparent frontrunner, Gary Marr, isn't a right-wing member of the party at all. If anything, he's to the center-left of the party and, and running as a progressive. In any other political milieu, he'd be a liberal and a capital L liberal. And I think it's really intriguing that despite all of the noise around, oh, the Wild Rose Alliance is the big threat, we've got to move to the right, I think there are certain people within the Tory brain trust who are saying, fine, if Danielle wants to hive off the extreme right wing of the party, she's welcome to them. We didn't want them anyway. They were noisy in the big tent. We'll happily kick them to the curb and we'll move the party to the center where Lougheed long wanted and kept it. You know, it, it's, it's an anomaly for the progressive conservative party to really be a right-wing party. And that's where all of this started, was with Lougheed anyway. Now, what about this, this fledgling Alberta party? And I have to say, I have to admit, that I am a card-carrying member of the Alberta party. I believe in what they're trying to do. Um, are they going to eke out on their own, or will they unite the left? 
have any sense of where Glenn Taylor wants to take that party. And the Alberta party, you know, I would say that it aligns politically with my own personal politics. I don't know that they're a ready for primetime party yet. I think it's really unfortunate that the Liberal and the Alberta Party, you know, remember that scene in in Life of Brian where they sit around and talk about the Judean People's Front of the People's Front for the Liberation of Judea and they all, oh, splitters, splitters. For the longest time, the right wing was like that. I mean, the refor- you know, the conservative reform, Canadian alliance, right, you know, and here the Wild Rose and the alliance and now it's now here in Alberta, it's on the left. I mean, you can't truly the new democrats hate the liberals more than they hate the tories now the liberals hate the alberta party uh you know if you want actual progressive governance change here i'm not sure that splitting 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 is the way to go i am very intrigued by the alberta party i was hoping that they would be able to field a leader who had more provincial profile and more street cred. No offense to Glenn Taylor, who I think was a respected mayor of Hinton and has a lot of respect in Ayuma quarters, but I don't think he has any provincial profile at all. Uh, I think that if you asked all of the people sitting on this deck who Glenn Taylor was, I don't know, and we're sitting in the land of champagne socialists. I mean, this is, I mean, <laughs> we're, I mean, we're sitting in what should be Alberta Party, you know, the nexus of its power. Was Dave Taylor the choice then? I mean, you're, you're bristling. You're, you're, you look almost, um, you look, you don't look comfortable at all. Dave is really entertaining. Um, you know, He's smart and he's pugnacious and he's articulate. But again, I mean, well, he didn't run for the leadership of the Alberta Party and he couldn't beat David Swan to win the leadership of the Liberal Party. And if he couldn't have beat David Swan, then he can't, you know, I'm sorry. If you can win the Liberal leadership with 8,000 votes and consider that a job well done, well, and it's not 8,000, 8,000 votes cast and, and Raj. He got 50, 54, but not 54% of the votes because the votes were weighted and some people's votes counted more than others. So Proxy, proxy votes? Do you know what? I, I kind of turned my brain off and I did not understand the minutiae of how the Liberal Party was conducting its leadership race because I wasn't covering it. That was Graham's job. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if they cast approximately 8,000 votes and Raj won 4,000 of them, you know, that's how many people follow me on Twitter. I could probably organize up. You know, I could a street party for 4,000 people. I think Paula just offered to lead the Alberta Liberal Party. I could be wrong. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? I don't know. Todd Babiak has already appointed me the interim leader of the Fancy Pants Party. That's. He would know. He would know. Now, I wish we had time to talk about civic politics. Uh, for the record, I would uh, buy a membership in the Fancy Pants Party. I think you'd look good, too. I think you really would. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out 
The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. And now, a dramatic reading with Scott C. Bourgeois. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Put my glasses on, I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Before I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking pedicure on our toes, toes, trying on all our clothes, clothes, boys blowing up our phones, phones, drop topping, playing our favorite CDs, pulling up to the parties, trying to get a little bit tipsy. Don't stop. Make it pop. DJ blow my speakers up. Tonight, I'm a fight till we see the sunlight. Tick-tock on the clock, but the party don't stop. Whoa, oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh, oh. Don't stop, make it pop. DJ blow my speakers up tonight. I'm a fight till we see the sunlight. Tick-tock on the clock, but the party don't stop. Whoa, oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh, oh. Ain't got a care in the world, but got plenty of beer. Ain't got no money in my pocket, but I'm already here. Now the dudes are lining up cause they hear we got swagger, but we kick them to the curb unless they look like Mick Jagger. I'm talking about everybody getting crunk, crunk. Boys trying to touch my junk, junk. Gonna smack him if he getting too drunk, drunk. Now, now, we go until they kick us out, out. Or the police shut us down, down. Police shut us down, down. Popo, shut us. Don't stop. Make it pop. DJ, blow my speakers up. Tonight, I'm a fight till we see the sunlight. Tick-tock on the clock. But the party don't stop. Whoa, oh, oh, oh. Whoa, oh, oh, oh. Don't stop. Make it pop. DJ, blow my speakers up. Tonight, I'm a fight till we see the sunlight. Tick-tock on the clock, but the party don't stop. Whoa, oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh, oh. DJ, you build me up, you break me down. My heart, it pounds. Yeah, you got me. With my hands up, you got me now. You gotta that sound. Yeah, you got me. DJ, you build me up. You break me down. My heart, it pounds. Yeah, you got me. With my hands up. Get your hands up. Put your hands up. No, the party don't stop until I walk in. Don't stop. Make it pop. DJ, blow my speakers up. Tonight, 
I'm a fight till we see the sunlight tick tock on the clock. But the party don't stop. Whoa, oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh, oh. Don't stop. Make it pop. DJ, blow my speakers up. Tonight, I'm a fight till we see the sunlight tick tock on the clock. But the party don't stop. Whoa, oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh. Oh. Scott, we're coming to that time in the show. Strangely, we didn't get a chance to talk about civic politics. We could. It's our show. We could, run the we could do whatever we I want. Talk faster. You can just cut out the part. Okay, the let's... Yeah, fuck it. It's our, it's our first episode back. Let's go long. Yeah, let's go long. Let's talk about civic politics. Let's talk about, first of all, the current city council. I feel like... And I say this with with all due respect and humility and I and I will again identify my connections Don Iveson good friend of mine um, Stephen Mandel I've met him a few times and have worked with him because of work uh, what do you guys think about current city council as a whole as a whole, I actually think that in the whole course of my life living in this city and covering civic politics, this is one of the most uh, intelligent and effective city councils we've ever had. You may not think that's setting the bar very high, but I've covered a lot of city councils. I think we have some really strong councillors, and I think that this mayor, uh, unlike either of his two immediate predecessors, has done a remarkable job of moving his agenda forward by corralling votes. I may not always agree with his agenda, I don't agree with him, for example, on the arena, but I have to say that having been at City Hall the night that he corralled those votes, it's like watching a symphony conductor. It's like watching a Super Bowl winning quarterback. This is a guy who can talk to people and get them to vote his way. And Bill Smith never figured that out. Jan Reimer never figured that out. Mandel is a genius at the art of the compromise. And whether or not you agree with his agenda, look at what he has accomplished in two and a half terms, getting what he wanted done, done. I have no strong feelings one way or the other. This is one of those situations? I, I really shouldn't comment on my personal beliefs about city council because of my, because of my work. That's fair. I, I can't objectively say that I agree with Paula that uh, Mandel has definitely accomplished a lot in his time as uh, as mayor of Edmonton and I would I would say that the no having done a lot of research on previous mayors for uh, the civic election because of the ghost mayors project that we were involved in um, the only other mayor I can think of that that would measure up to the same the same level of accomplishment would be probably Horlack stealing stuff I mean I the, 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 no. I, I'm not commenting on 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 his uh, on his honesty 
But I'm saying that Horlack also accomplished a lot as mayor. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been reelected despite all of the alleged crimes that he was involved in. Well, I mean, it's, it's true. Horlock was an immensely effective mayor, except for all the conflict of interest stuff. I mean, Lawrence DeCourt was also a very effective mayor for the same reasons that Mandel is. But, you know, Adam's question was about the council in general. I remember some councils that were so dysfunctional that, you know, one city councilor in the middle of a meeting dumped a bucket of water on another councilor's head. I remember hearing about that. Who was involved in that exactly? You want me to say? Sheila McKay and Brian Mason. Brian Mason? You mean the leader of the provincial New Democratic Party? Yeah, but he, did, he didn't dump the water. I mean, we've had, we've had some interesting city councillors. This council, um, they, don't, they don't think and act with one voice, and in many ways that's good. There's some good foils on that council. There's some smart people who really do their homework, and there are some people who are, I think they do a pretty good job of representing a pretty broad cross-section of Edmontonians and Edmonton opinions. Uh, city councillors have one of the most thankless of tasks because they are the closest to the voters and all of their foibles and all of their failings. I mean, people blame city councillors when they don't get their snow shovel, just like they blame me when the paper doesn't come. Uh, I do too, for the record. People phone me when their paper does not come, truly. People phone me when anything happens and I'm to blame. It's very strange being in the media on radio. It's like, it's too hot out. Do something about it. And I'm like, I'm... Okay, I'll pass that along to our meteorologist. This is all because of your your precarious relationship with Josh Clausen, isn't it? Well, it's not even just Josh. I've had people call to complain about like their garbage not being picked up, and I'm like, how does this? How how do I have an effect on this? Why are you complaining to me? It's very strange being in the media. You uh, you have connections, Scott. Connections that you should use. No, but I think I think we do function as lightning rods. People call me about the most extraordinary things, but they do blame me when the Sudoku answers are wrong and and the TV guide doesn't come. Do something. I mean, someone called, someone emailed me this weekend to complain about the way our obituary page is edited, and I, I it's not my. I mean, literally, it is not my department. But I think for city councilors, uh, they take a lot of flack. And as somebody who spends a lot of time covering city council, sometimes very kind people say to me, oh, you should run for city council. And I say, I would rather stick sharp needles in my eyes. City councillors, the good ones, work and work and work and work and work. And they do really boring things a lot of the time. They sit through meetings and public hearings that, you know, if I couldn't pass notes to the guy sitting next to me and draw little fancy doodles uh, and tweet you know, live tweeting during city council meetings is a godsend. You see from going insane. Um, I have a lot of empathy for city councillors. They have to make some very difficult decisions, and because they are the closest to the voters, and people really hold them accountable for every penny. I think that's the other thing. In a strange way, I have to pay my city property taxes. I keep forgetting it's in my purse. When you have to go and actually, you know, cut a check, and it feels like someone came and stole money from you. When your federal taxes come off your paycheck, they just come off your paycheck. Your provincial taxes, who even knows? So I think people feel aggrieved by every single thing that city council does that they don't like. If the lights aren't timed right on the yellowhead, that's the city councilor's fault. If, if, you know, if the white mud is still not finished, that's city council's fault. I mean, people, 
you know, the day that the asphalt didn't come and the road was backed up, people said, you know, the mayor should resign. And I thought, really? The mayor should resign because the asphalt company screwed up the asphalt delivery? Do you think the mayor puts the gravel in the asphalt himself? I mean, do, I mean, do people think Amarjeet still drives all the buses? I find it... Uh, it's it's really it's very peculiar. Never it, okay. You can record this for posterity. Never, 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 never will I run for city council. And if I do, you can feel free to take this out of the archives and run it over and over and over again. When my colleagues Scott McKean and Carrie Diot ran last year, I thought they were both nuts. I said to Scott, "I like to go to the zoo. I like to watch the tigers. I don't get in the cage with the tigers." <laughs> you know, Scott lost. Carrie won. I don't know which of them got the better out. Come. Yeah, um, okay, so you heard it here first. An unknown studio exclusive. Paula Simons will never run for city council. Bless her heart, although we wish she would. Probably. Um, this whole snow removal thing, has it... Okay, first, can I, I, I'm going to rant. I'm going to go off on a rant, first of all. Carrie Diod is the low-hanging fruit counselor. He's the pothole counselor. He's the snow removal counselor. If he wants to have any impact or or want to do anything beyond his whatever year term, is it three or four? I can't remember. It's three years. Are we really going to... De- like, I mean, the stuff that he tries to engage people on, we're not talking about city building. We're talking about the kinds of things that EPCOR looks after. And there's a reason EPCOR looks after that stuff. Snow removal. Uh, is it Bob Boudelier? Bob Boudelier decided that we should tow vehicles from snow routes. And I don't disagree with him. But I feel like citizens in this city want to have it both ways. And I'm getting really, really frustrated. If you want residential streets plowed, there cannot be cars on that street. Why doesn't anyone else seem to get this? Because Edmontonians believe that they have a God-given divine right to park their cars in front of their house. I lived in Toronto for a couple of years. I was shocked as an Edmontonian when I moved there. I had to pay. I had to buy a permit to park in front of the house I was renting. And in fact, often I had to park two blocks away because I lived at College in Bathurst and I couldn't park in front of my house on Saturday nights. I just didn't move the car. Um... It's cold here and everybody drives. I mean, and, and Bob Boudelier was only talking about towing cars on bus routes, which I, I, I hesitate to point this out. If you live on a bus route, it means you can take the bus. But, uh, you know, I have a garage. I park my car in the garage. And when people said to me, I can't park in the garage because the plows get me stuck in the garage, to which I responded, well, maybe if they weren't busy doing other things, they could plow your lane better and you could get out of your garage. I understand. It's, I mean, people want to be able to park in front of their house. My parents are elderly. You know, they like, if they come to visit me, I mean, they have a garage, but if they came to my house, they'd want to be able to park in front of my house. In the winter, I don't live on a bus route. Um... But, you know, honest to God, you can't whine, 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 you know, they don't clear the snow. And then when they come up with a plan to clear the snow, I don't like the plan to clear the snow. Move your car, get it off the road, let them plow the snow. Someone wrote to me and said that in Quebec City, they have what sounds like an interesting, albeit probably very expensive system, where you can park 
And then on the days when they're going to plow, they light up the signs with red lights. And then you have to move your car out of the red light district, as it were. And that sounded like a not bad idea, except it doesn't really deal with the guy who's parked his car and then gone to Phoenix. Um, in which case, I think we should not just tow his car, but I think we should squish it in one of those metal things that they use in the movies to squish gangsters. The lesson is don't go to Phoenix, but I think you're bang on. And I, I, I mean, it snows here in the winter every other day. And if you walk out of your house and haven't recognized that it has snowed, and you don't have the, the capacity of mind to, lose, to, to move your vehicle from the front street, I have exactly no sympathy for you. I have the solution. It will only cost the Edmonton taxpayers billions of dollars. It is something they use in Norway. It is a heated road system. Not joking. They, they heat the roads. They have, they have a hydraulic system that runs underneath the roads. During the summer months, the hydraulic system absorbs the heat so that the roads don't get as warm during the summer. So it saves, it saves on the concrete splitting and whatnot during, uh, during the warmer summer months. And then during the winter, that heat is radiated back into the concrete so that it doesn't ice up and it doesn't get snowy because it all melts very quickly and runs off the road. So they have invented a heated road system, and I think we need to tear up every road in Edmonton and install that. I think we need to put a big dome over the city, and then we should all fly in hovercrafts and jetpacks. And if we had a transporter, that would be even better, because then we could just take the transporter to work. I don't disagree with either of you. Jetpacks are a fondness of mine. I would like to point out that Nike has made a self-lacing shoe from Back to the Future, and I feel like that is a step in the right direction. But this notion, this it's its weird. It's like this... this you know, Edmontonians have complained about snow removal for as long as I've been reading the news. For as long as snow has fallen on Edmonton streets. And, and you know, I get it. I, I totally get it. As a guy who occasionally drives a car, yes, it's extremely inconvenient. But could we all please just grow the fuck up? Honestly. Are you allowed to say that? It's my show. Can we all grow up because... Does your mother listen to this show? My God, I hope not. I'm pretty sure my parents don't. They're not that proud of us, I don't think. <laughs> but, but, like, you can't have one to the exclusion of the other. You can't demand world-class snow removal, but then also be like, my car needs to be in front of my house. And you also can't then complain when you, it's time to pay your city taxes. I mean, that's the, that's the other piece of this. I mean, not only do people not want to pay for heated roads, they don't want to pay for, for, they don't want to pay for anything. I mean, I mean, talk about wanting to have your cake and eat it too. I mean, the whinging that goes on when they raise taxes to keep up with the cost of living. And then you cannot expect world-class services if you're not willing to pay for it. People say, well, they have better snow removal in St. Albert's. Yes. And you know what the mill rate is in St. Albert? I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. I was having an interesting conversation with, with, with friends last night about people on both the far left and the far right who both seem to believe that the elves pay for things. I mean, people on the way far right who don't want to pay taxes but still, you know, want a robust military and a robust you know, everything else. And people on the far left who think if we all just shared everything, it would all be wonderful. Economics don't work that way. You get what you pay for. 
And if you want, if you want better public services, then you have to pay more taxes. And if you want a world-class city with a downtown arena, a downtown provincial museum, and a downtown 24-hour dance party. And they will be iconic, and they will be signature. you got to pay higher taxes. Uh, you forgot to mention a downtown not airport. Oh, yes, yes. That community is going to be built, which I am, frankly, in support of. Having seen what Denver did with their downtown airport, um, it's quite inspiring. But, you know, I mean, try convincing the the naysayers of the tax-paying population that this is a good idea. Or, frankly, the David McLeans, who don't believe that the city can do anything right when it comes to urban planning. And that, well, that may or may not be true. But I don't think that the current city council is that far off, although I don't agree with Kerry Diot on the, the minutiae. He's focusing on the wrong things. Well, and if he's the mayor in two years, um, I, I think I think I think Harry probably will run for mayor in two years. I think that a lot of what he's doing now is politicking leading up to that. I think that's what's going to be really, really interesting. I mean, I think this is definitely Mandel's last term, uh, and it, I think that he's come to the end of what he wants to accomplish, and I think the end of what he politically can accomplish, and I think his family is ready for him to be finished being mayor when this term is up. Uh, and then I think this is where the city gets really interesting. There are some very different directions the city could go in. A Carrie Diot Merrillty looks very different from a Don Iveson Merrillty, looks very different from a Linda Sloan Merrillty, looks very different from a Kevin Taft Merrillty, looks very different from a Richard Wong Merrillty. There are a lot of interesting names out there. I wasn't expecting KTAF, but I certainly wasn't expecting Richard Wong. There are a lot of interesting people out there who are tire kicking. That's cool. That's great. That sounds like a robust uh, mayoral election. And more than that, it shows an interest in civic politics, which, and I, I'm sure I've said this before, but I will repeat it. If there's one level of politics you should be most engaged in, it is your civic politics. It is the politics that affect you directly, much more so than provincial or federal politics. If there's one thing you should be voting for, it is for your mayor and your city council. I don't disagree with you, Scott. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, the interesting thing is, just as we were talking about here, you know, I, I, I wonder if in some ways the election of Nate Nenshi in Calgary hasn't sort of sexed up the role of, of civic politics in this province. But I think also in Edmonton, I think there's an interesting social discourse that's evolving on Twitter, um, on blogs, I mean, the number of young people who are really interested and engaged in urban planning issues, in LRT issues, um, in all kinds of civic governance issues. It used to be that City Hall was the most boring beat you could have at the paper, that, you know, it was the, you know, the news where you snooze. And I think that perhaps it's because people are frustrated that... that the monolithic nature of provincial politics in this province. Maybe it's that Ottawa feels very far away. Maybe it's just that Edmonton is coming of age much more as a city-state. But I think people are very freshly and genuinely engaged in civil politics in a way that they haven't been in a long time. And I think the next mayoral election is going to be very exciting and a lot of fun to cover. I think we might have you on again when that starts to happen because uh, you seem to have a lot of intel. 
I have intel on everything. It's I'm older than dirt. It's like it's like you know it's like Mel Brooks interview. You know, it's Carl Reiner interviews the you know the the, the six thousand year old man. I mean, I know everything. I don't believe I don't believe her. I think she's she's putting on how much older she is than us, Scott. I like how you've just guaranteed an episode for our fifth or sixth season as well. So, I would like to apologize for all of our listeners because I've committed Scott and myself and Paula to uh, shows a couple years down the road. Well, you can have me on before then. Because I have to tell you, I, I was saying this to Scott earlier. You know, I've been interviewed by Peter Zosky. I've been interviewed by Giango Meschi. I've been interviewed by Peter Brown, by, you know, uh, Rob Breckenridge, Charles Adler. I've been interviewed by all kinds of people, Stuart McLean. No one ever took me to a beautiful deck like this before. And I was going to say no one ever bought me drinks and food before. But, in fact, you didn't buy me drinks and food. You guys have been drinking beer, and I've been sitting here drinking tap water. You opted out. I have to say... <laughs> Paula was concerned about her, shall we say, shall we say uh, as, as I'm obviously demonstrating, her low threshold for the consumption of alcohol. Yeah, you see, and now, I, now, now having fessed up that all I've had is water, I can't later when you play this back and people say, how could, how, how could you say all those things? I can't pretend I was drunk. I can't, you know, I can't do a Mel Gibson. I, this, okay. is, this, is, this is me. This is the unvarnished and totally sober me. And this is what I sound like stone cold sober. It's frightening. Well, next time we have you on, we'll have you on, on on the patio of a wonderful establishment again. You can drink. That time we'll see if your opinions and thoughts yeah. change based on uh, how much you've had to drink. In the event that you do get in trouble for anything that you've said here, have your editor-in-chief call me, and I will say to her that I coerced every single thing you said. Lucinda, were you listening? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure she was. The EIC of the Edmonton Journal must listen to the Unknown Studio. Uh, much as other many prominent people do, such as uh, I believe we've uh, established Gerald Cates listens yes, to the show. Obviously. And uh, probably Ryan Smith now that he's back in town. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm almost certain the prime minister listens to the show. Uh, possibly even the president of Germany. I believe it's the chancellor actually there. So, uh, yeah, uh, we've established that a lot of famous people listen to our show. Uh, I would also like to establish that we have no means with which to gauge who actually listens to our show. Guten Abend, Frau Merkel. Wie geht es dir dann? Hast du das gehört? Ja, Frau Merkel, ja, das ist wunderschön. Danke. I think Paula just told the German Chancellor to go fuck herself. <laughs> but I can't be sure because I don't speak German. On that note... I think it is time to uh, move over to Adam's favorite part of the show. And our first one of the season, I'm, of course, referring to the Fast 15. That's right. It's the Fast 15 with Paula Simons. And, and you know this is my favorite part of the show. Are you nervous? In the Name of Love is now playing. That's right. So I'm, I'm good. Martin Luther King is here with me. I hope you're right, because, you know, actually the Fast 15 has not changed this season. We changed it last season, but we like it so much that we decided to stick with the same questions. Now, Paula, you're familiar with the show? Yes. Okay, so. What am I going to say? No? I don't know. Yeah. I I have the mug. People have said no, and we've been deeply offended, and we'll never have them on again. 
but you will be a repeat guest. I can guarantee that. So the Fast 15. The first. What if I change the answer to the next Fast 15? We'll know that you're dishonest. Hey, people can ch- I've, I've had like four favorite colors in my life, so people change. Yeah. And judging by your fantastic Game of Thrones t-shirt, Scott, I have to, I have to suggest that your new favorite color is yellow. You're wearing a, a Greyjoy, House Greyjoy t-shirt. That is unexpected. I'm going to point out the main color here is black, not yellow. And my favorite color for the last while has been black, so. All right. Now, I'm not going to be the first person to tell you black's not a color, but we don't have time to debate this because right now we have to do the Fast 15 with Paula Simons. First 13 questions, standard questions for all of our guests. The last two wild card questions for you. Feel free to elaborate or not as much as you want on those wild card questions because they truly are gems. Here we go. The Fast 15 with Paula Simons. Number one, your favorite food. Brayburn apples. Your favorite color. Blue, royal blue. Mac, PC, or Linux? Mac. Except I don't have one. I have my daughter's and I steal it. That's fair. Dogs or cats? Dogs, definitely. Coffee or tea? Herbal tea. All right. Your favorite holiday? Passover. Your favorite sport? Um, that would presuppose that I liked any of them. Um, to, to, in, to engage in or to watch? Your choice. Cycling. To engage in or to watch? To engage in. Fair enough. And your favorite pastime? I cannot say that on your radio station on the off chance that your mother of mine might be listening. That has been the best answer to that question in our entire history. I like the ambiguity. <laughs> I was very annoyed. We just celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary. Ooh, highly suggestive. She's into video games, everybody. Here we go. <laughs> your favorite <laughs> Your favorite music. There's no video involved, and I just like to say that very clearly for the record. <laughs> wow, Scott, you're going to have to censor the hell out of this. <laughs> your favorite music at this particular moment. Uh, well, my favorite music at this particular moment is going to be the Talking Heads because we just had a round of Talking Headness. Totally fair, David Byrne, musical genius. Your favorite movie? The Man Who Would Be King and Casablanca. Can I have two favorite movies? Right. There you go. Your favorite video game, if you have one? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to qualify that. Pong. <laughs> That is extremely acceptable. No, no, okay. Uh, I like Wii Sports Resort. I play that with the kid. Awesome. Very current. More current than Pong, anyway. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, hmm. Um, I I think, uh, you know, like we were talking about the transporter before, I would like to be able to beam myself from place to place. That's totally awesome. And uh, now the question that is near and dear to my heart, and probably to Scott's as well. Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, Star Trek. Only, I mean, Star Wars, the first one, was my movie. I think I saw it seven times the summer it came out, because that's how old I am. Um, I was 11. I was 11 when Star Wars. You were young. You were young. I was young. See, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still young. But, you know, how can one possibly love a franchise after the, those last three movies? No, no, no. Star Trek, from, from, the, from the Tribbles to the Deep Space Nine to the, you know, except Voyager. I totally agree. 
Okay. And now on to our wild card questions. Now, we did talk about this very briefly. We didn't get into any of the specifics, but what's the better project in your mind? A downtown arena or a downtown provincial museum? Oh, well, that's easy. That's a gimme. I mean, I'm a huge backer of the, of the provincial museum. I don't know. The downtown, is, it wasn't my favorite location, but the realpolitik of the deal is that that's where it has to be to make the deal work. Um, the downtown arena, for me, the issue isn't even about funding. I'm dubious that a downtown arena is going to be an engine of revitalization. You know, people are talking about condo development around it, commercial development around it. I mean, I've lived in other cities with downtown arenas. I've visited other cities with downtown arenas. I don't think that they are terribly effective at creating street life. They're empty a lot of the time if they don't have the right design and street level engagement. As I say, for me, Realistically, what the city is going to spend on this proposed arena isn't that much different than what they spent on the interchange for South Edmonton Common. Ah, but um, so for me, it's not about the money. I just don't think that that's the right location for the arena. I'm worried about what it's going to do to 104th Street. I'm worried about what it's going to do to Chinatown. I'm worried about what it's going to do to the North Edge. Um, on the other hand, we desperately need a new museum and. Well, I won't run for city council. I would happy to be the person who headed up the, the capital campaign to raise more money to build the museum properly. All right. That was a thoroughly complete answer. And now your last wild card question. How do you describe Edmonton to friends of yours outside of the city? I'm crazy for this place. I love this place. I bring people here. I... I I drag my American university classmates here and I say to them, this is a magical city. This is a city that has yet to reach all its possibilities. This is a city where you can still be a pioneer and do something for the first time, where you can actually change the face of your city. This is a city that has a depth of cultural festivals. I, you know, the way I like to describe this city, if I could transport people here to the Heritage Festival and make them stand in the middle of Horlick Park eating bolognese and watching ladies in saris eating pierogies. To me, the Heritage Festival is the perfect emblem of everything that this city is when it is its very best. Inclusive, democratic, cosmopolitan, open to new ideas, nestled in this beautiful river valley. I'm insanely mad about this place. God knows, you know, I've, I've lived and worked in places that other people think are better, more attractive, have better climates. The magic that keeps bringing me back here time and again is that sense of being on the frontier, of having all the potential yet in front of us, and of having the mad delusion that even in my little way as a newspaper columnist, the work I do shapes this city for the better. I don't think we could have asked for a more perfect answer, Scott. Like, I'm, I'm actually touched, actually. Like, you look, you look affected. This is great. For Klempt, I love it. I, a little bit, I am. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to season three of the Unknown Studio. Paula, thank you so much for spending time with us on this hot deck. You've, uh, you've definitely set the bar high for all of our guests this season. 
Well, it's my very it's my very great pleasure. And since we're talking about the bar, now that we're going to turn off the tape, then we'll see what we can do about you know. Ladies and gentlemen, Paula Simons. Before she gets hammered, thank you for listening. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 54. Our guest, Paula Simons, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Don't